Section 22. The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section 22. Chapter 5 Continued. The Military Aspect of the Revolution. 2. On the 2nd of September, Verdun was entered by the Prussians, and a little outside the gates of town, near a village bearing the name of Regret, the Allied camp was fixed. Rather more than a week later, on the 11th, the Allies marched against the line of the Argonne. The reader will remember that this moment, with the loss of the frontier fortress Longwy and Verdun, and the evidence of demoralization which that afforded, was also the moment of the September massacres and of the horrors in Paris. Dumouriez and the mixed French force which he commanded had been ordered by the ministers of war to hold the line of the Argonne against which the Allies were marching. And here it is well to explain what was meant in a military sense by this word line. The Argonne is a long, nearly straight range of hills running from the south northward a good deal to the west of north their soil is clay and though the height of the hills is only three hundred feet above the plain their escarpment or steep side is towards the east whence an invasion may be expected they are densely wooded from five to eight miles broad the supply of water in them is bad in many parts undrinkable habitation with its provision for armies and roads are extremely rare it is necessary to insist upon all these details because the greater part of civilian readers find it difficult to understand how formidable an obstacle so comparatively unimportant a feature in the landscape may be to an army upon the march it was quite impossible for the guns the wagons and therefore the food and ammunition of the invading army to pass through the forest over the drenched clay land of that wet autumn save where proper roads existed these were only to be found wherever a sort of natural pass negotiated the range. Three of these passes alone existed, and to this day there is very little choice in the crossing of these hills. The accompanying sketch will explain their disposition. Through the southernmost went the great high road from the frontier and Verdun to Paris, at the middle one which is called the Gap of Grand Prix. Dumouriez was waiting with his incongruous army. The third and northern one was also held, but less strongly. The obvious march for an unimpeded invader would have been from Verdun, along the high road, through the southern pass, at Les Islettes, and so to Chalons, on down to Paris. But Dumouriez, marching down rapidly from the north, had set an advance guard to hold that pass, and was lying himself with the mass of the army on the pass to the north of it at Grand Prix. Against Grand Prix, the Prussians marched. And meanwhile, the Austrians were attacking the further pass to the north. Both were forced. Dumouriez fell back southwards to St. Meinhold. Meanwhile, Kellerman was coming up from Metz to join him. And all the while, the main pass at Les Islettes, through which the great road to Paris went, continued to be held by the French. The Prussians and the Austrians 
joined forces in the plain known as the Champagne-Pouliers, which lies westward of Argonne. It will be seen that as they marched south along this plain to meet Dumouriez and to defeat him, their position was a peculiar one. They were nearer the enemy's capital than the enemy's army was, and yet they had to fight with their backs to that capital, and their enemy, the French, had to fight with their faces towards it. Moreover, it must be remarked that the communications of the Allied army were now of a twisted, roundabout sort which made the conveyance of provisions and ammunition slow and difficult. But they counted upon an immediate destruction of Dumouriez's force after that a rapid march on the capital. On September 19, Kellerman came up from the south and joined hands with Dumouriez near St. Meinhold, and on the morning of the 20th his force occupied a roll of land on which there was a windmill and immediately behind which was the village of Valmy. From this village the ensuing action was to take its name. It must here be insisted upon that both armies had been subjected to the very worst weather for more than a fortnight. But of the two, the Prussian force had suffered from this accident much more severely than the French. Dysentery had already broken out, and the length and tortuousness of their communications were greatly emphasized by the conditions of the road. On the morning of that day, the 20th of September, a mist impeded all decisive movement. There was an encounter, half accidental, between an advanced French battery and the enemy's guns, but it was not until mid-morning that the weather lifted enough to show each force its opponent. Then there took place an action, or rather a cannonade, the result of which is more difficult to explain, perhaps, than any other considerable action of the Revolutionary Wars. For some hours the Prussian artillery, later reinforced by the Austrian, cannonaded the French position, having for its central mark the windmill of Valmy, round which the French forces were grouped. At one moment this cannonade took effect upon the limbers and ammunition wagons of the French. There was an explosion which all eyewitnesses have remembered as the chief feature of the firing, and which certainly threw into confusion for some moments the ill-assorted troops under Kellerman's command. At what hour this took place, the witnesses who have left us accounts differ to an extraordinary extent. Some will have it at noon, others toward the middle of the afternoon. So difficult is it to have any accurate account of what happens in the heat of an action. At any rate, if not coincidentally with this success, at some moment not far removed from it, the Prussian charge was ordered, and it is here that the difficulties of the historian chiefly appear. That charge was never carried home, whether, as some believe, because it was discovered, after it was ordered, to be impossible in the face of the accuracy and intensity of the French fire, or whether, as it is more probably the case, because the drenched soil compelled the commanders to abandon the movement after it had begun. Whatever the cause may have been, the Prussian force, though admirably disciplined and led, and though advancing in the most exact order, failed to carry out its original purpose. It halted halfway up the slope, and the action remained a mere cannonade without immediate result apparent upon either side. Nevertheless, that result ultimately turned out to be very great, and if we consider its place in history, quite as important as might have been the result of a decisive action. In the first place, the one day's delay which it involved 
was just more than the calculations of the Allies with their long, impeded line of communications had allowed for. In the next place, a singular increase in determination and moral force was infused into the disheartened and ill-matched troops of the French commanders by this piece of resistance. We must remember that the French force, upon the whole, expected and discounted a defeat. The private soldier especially had no confidence in the result, and to find that the first action which had been so long threatened, and had now at last come, he could stand up to the enemy, produced upon him an exaggerated effect which it would never have had under other circumstances. Finally, we must recollect that whatever causes had forbidden the Prussian charge forbade on the next day a general advance against the French position, and all the time the sickness in the Prussian camp was rapidly increasing. Even that short check of twenty-four hours made a considerable difference. A further delay of but yet another day during which the Allied army could not decide whether to attack at once or to stand as they were, very greatly increased the list of inefficients from illness. For a whole week of increasing anxiety and increasing inefficiency, the Allied army hung thus impotent, though they were between the French forces and the capital. Dumouriez ably entertained this hesitation with all its accumulating dangers for the enemy by prolonged negotiations, until upon the 30th of September the Prussian and Austrian organization could stand the strain no longer, and its commanders determined upon retreat. It was the genius of Danton, as we now know, that chiefly organized the withdrawal of what might still have been a dangerous invading force. It is principally due to him that no unwise jingoism was permitted to claim a trial of strength with the invader, that he was allowed to retire with all his guns, his colors, and his train. The retreat was lengthy and unmolested, though watched by the French forces that discreetly shepherded it, but were kept tightly in hand from Paris. It was more than three weeks later when the Allied army, upon which Europe and the French monarchy had counted for an immediate settlement of the revolution, recrossed the frontier, and in this doubtful and perhaps inexplicable fashion, the first campaign of the European powers against the revolution utterly failed. The end of section 22.